Let's get started. Um, so the summer before my senior year in football, I was a small town big shot. Um, there were several write-ups in the newspaper about all the huge things everyone should expect from me uh, my senior year in football. Before this even even started, I had scouts coming to watch our summer practices, our summer workouts, I mean, and then our two-a-day practices. Um, so I was clearly going to be big stuff. Um, and when I rolled into our first game against Immaculata High School, the only Catholic school in our league, um, I was ready to dominate. And, uh, and I got my butt kicked. I got it completely handed to me. Not only did our team lose, it was the only game we lost until like third round of the playoffs. We lost pretty bad. Um, but I personally just got dominated. It was terrible. IMAC had this relatively small center named Juan Fry. I'll never forget his name because I hate him. Um, and, uh, and he low blocked me all night. I mean, he would snap the ball and he would just hit my knees all night long. And, uh, it was like trying to play football with a chihuahua chewing on your ankle, um, all night long. And, uh, so here's this big shot player to watch. <laughs> completely crying to the refs all night. Ref, get him off my knees. He's, he's, that's not fair. You know, it was, it was, a total embarrassment. Like I was a, I was a mess. Um, but I clearly got beat that night. And my coach used it as an occasion to drive home one of his favorite sayings, um, which was this: the only thing to follow a pat on the back is a kick in the butt. Like that's like the the thing that always follows a pat on the back is a kick in the butt. And I spent all summer getting pats on the back, and that night Juan Fry kicked me in the butt. Um, and of course, this isn't a new principle. Uh, it wasn't even new to me. I was taught way back in elementary school um, that it was Isaac Newton that said, what goes up must come down. And, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure my coach was just trying to keep us from getting a big head. And I'm, if, I'm, if I'm right, if I remember Schoolhouse Rock, you guys remember Schoolhouse Rock? Isaac, Isaac Newton was talking about apples. But, um, but what I know is that these two people were deeply tied into the human condition. Uh, because I don't know very much that's predictable in life, but I do know um, the one thing that seems to follow life going up is life suddenly going down. Um, and, uh, and so if you have not figured that out, I just want to let you know this morning, when life is great and it's just going up, click, 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 and all of a sudden the view is beautiful and you feel like you can see forever, Make sure that harness over your chest is latched down tight because a drop is coming. Uh, it's right in front of you. And boy, did those uh, words play out for me this week. Last week was awesome. Like we, uh, we had an amazing long Lent season and it was kind of rough. And Esther and I took it really seriously. We leaned in hard. We did some tough soul work. And I was so excited about Easter, both as the celebration of the resurrection and the, the end um, to Holy Week, and, or the end to Lent. And Holy Week was just amazing, and it felt like the world was going click, 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 just moving upward and upward, and the anticipation was building. And last Sunday was so beautiful, and I could see so far ahead. And then Monday hit, and they were screaming, and I just threw my hands up and tried not to throw up. I mean, it was, you know, it was the roller coaster ride. And the worst part is... I had this uh, big plan to talk about life and not just like life, but resurrection life and how amazing life with Jesus is supposed to be. And, and while I'm studying to, to, to get ready, while I'm supposed to be preparing for this, I'm just holding on and waiting for the ride to get over. Um, 
all that to say, it was a rough week. But um, I think we can re- relate to that, right? Anybody else recognize the roller coasters? Anybody else, you know, yeah, when uh, uh, every time you think you got things figured out, there's another drop. And every time you start to get used to the speed that everything's moving at, the loop-de-loop's coming. You're upside down. And, and, uh, and the second things stop for half a second, your kids are going, let's do it again. So, and all this leads up to the question that really fuels this study, which is, what is the meaning of life? Actually, I'm totally kidding. That is way over my head. I am not nearly smart enough to answer that question, and I don't even pretend to be. Um, but I would like to wrestle with why on earth can it be so hard? Why is life so tough? And more than that, what impact is the resurrection of Jesus supposed to have on our lives? Because those things are clearly supposed to be connected. The resurrection and our lives and the way we live are supposed to be Connected. In fact, as we're coming off the Easter high and, and we dove together last week into the shock and exultation of Jesus' resurrection as told by John, I thought it might be meaningful to look at John's kind of grand motive. I mean, last week we talked about John's motive for the way he told the Easter story, um, where he told it true making Mary Magdalene the, the primary witness, but he also constructed it in this chiasm um, that would highlight the evidential and, frankly, legally admissible peace that he wanted. The, in fact, I have to brag real quick on Matt, and this is going to be really fun for everybody. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anybody noticed, but Matt wrote the little blurb um, about last week's sermon in the weekly email in the form of a chiasm. Go back and read it. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Now that he knows what a chiasm is, he wrote the blurb in the form of a chiasm. It'll be a fun little study to go back and read. Um, so do that. Not right now. Put your phone away. But do it when you get home. Right now you pay attention to me. That's what we do here. No. Um, but so John had a clear motive for the way he structured his story. He, he told it true. He put Mary where she was supposed to be. But in that culture, a female witness to an event was not legally admissible. And so he, he kind of put Mary's part on the edges of his chiasm. And right in the middle where the main point goes, he put these folded linens. And that speaks to John's motive for telling that story, but it doesn't really speak to his grand motive for why did he sit down and write this entire account of Jesus's life? I mean, his account's very intentional, and it's a crafted narrative of Jesus's life with a clearly theological bent. In other words, John didn't tell this story like a historian. He wasn't just recording events. He was drawing out particular theological aspects of Jesus' nature and character and stressing those stories. So, for instance, John is the only writer who captures John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He's the only one that wrote that down. But then he tells us all through his gospel that when certain things happened, the disciples didn't realize you know, who Jesus was and what he came to do. Which means that, uh, that after Jesus is risen from the dead, John thinks back and he remembers this thing John said. That at the time he probably thought was just an oddity. He probably heard John say, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. And he was probably like, That guy's nuts. Like, I don't even know what he's talking about. And then later, he remembers that and he goes back and he goes, Holy cow, John said it in the beginning. And, and so he, he grabs that little nugget and he makes sure it goes into his story, his telling of the Jesus story. So in other words, John's narrative is very intentional and purposeful. And the best part is he shares that purpose 
with us. I thought for the son of uh, the fun of continuity's sake, we would just pick up where the story left off last week. If you remember, Mary found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Peter and John came to check it out, and when they go in, they find this detail that John wants highlighted, which is the fact that the wrappings were neatly folded and set aside. Uh, if, because if this had been a grave robbing, if this had been any other way for the body to disappear, who on earth unwraps the body? There is zero incentive for the body to be unwrapped if somebody's just trying to steal it. So the fact that these are folded and set neatly aside is a big evidence for John. It's a big, it's a big point he wants to draw out. And so he puts this in the center. Um, and then, uh, but then back in the story, Mary meets Jesus face to face and Jesus reveals himself to her. And then he sends Mary out with the gospel, with the risen gospel to tell the disciples, which means that a first century woman is the very first Christian evangelist, which is amazing. I love that part of the story. She's the first person to go forth with this message of the risen Savior. But she goes back and tells the disciples. And then... uh, and then uh, we're going to pick up right there. That's where we left off last week. We're reading in John chapter 20, if you want to follow in your own Bible. If not, the words will be on the screen. But it reads like this. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And he, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and, and I put my fingers in them and place my hand in the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told them, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. So John kind of lays out how every single one of the disciples becomes like an official first-hand witness Of the resurrection of Jesus. Even Thomas who missed the first visit. And then as if this is kind of the the end of the actual narrative. um, Almost as if he just had to arbitrarily pick a spot to stop. He stops. And then he adds this this last little piece. Where he's almost like this spot is as good as any to quit. And he adds this last little kind of addendum. He said the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs. In addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, to finish my earlier point, John makes it very clear that there were many, many other stories he could have chosen from. But he chose these stories, these specific stories, these intentional stories for a purpose. This is not a historical account. This is a sermon that John is writing. And this message was written for a specific purpose. And thank God John spells that purpose out clearly. He said, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. So John didn't write this gospel account just to put it in the history books. 
just, you know, this is what happened. He wrote this narrative so we would believe in Jesus and that when we do that, it might bring us life. So ultimately, the reason John, the book of John exists, the reason this book, which is translated more than any other book of the Bible, and the Bible being the most translated book on the planet, was written. The reason this book, which has some of the most quoted lines in all the scripture, for God so loved the world, in the beginning was the word, and the word was, you know, for I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Like the most quoted texts in the Bible, the reason those were written was so that you would have life. Which is awesome. Except, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean to have life? I mean, earlier in John's book, he's recording this long set of parables and teachings that Jesus is giving about the religious leaders, the leaders of Israel, who had prophetically been called shepherds for centuries. And he's framing his teaching in, the, in these metaphors about sheep and shepherds and all these things as he's talking about them. In the, in the, in the middle of this Bats of teachings, he says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. So if John wrote his book, that we would have life. And Jesus says the reason he came was so that we would have life. Doesn't it seem important that we kind of figure out what that means? To have life? And many of us don't dive too deep into this. We just assume when we hear teachings about eternal life that it means heaven. Right? That's what it really means. We came so we could get to heaven. Right? Jesus died. John wrote so we could go to heaven. End of story. I actually don't think that's it. Because the idea of life being at the center of the narrative is not a new one. Especially for the Jewish people. In fact, the entire story of the Jews is built on this understanding of life. We hit on this a couple times over the last year. But in the beginning of the Jewish nation, the beginning of the whole story of being Jews, there was a choice. These people had a genetic link to a man that followed God. His name was Abraham. And God promised Abraham that he was going to be faithful to Abraham's family. And in fact, he was going to bless the entire world through this family. Which is awesome. But about 400 years after God tells us to Abraham, it does not look like God is following through on his promise. Abraham's descendants were slaves in a foreign land. And about the, the, the time when you start to think God is gone, he shows up. And he doesn't just show up, he shows up ready for a movement. He shows up and he calls Moses and he says, it's time. It's time to start. So God frees his people miraculously. I won't belabor the details. But then God takes his people to a mountain where he lays out what it means to live God's way. And more specifically, how the people of God are supposed to act. How they're supposed to live. And the description is long and it can get convoluted and complicated as any document designed to govern a people should. It includes, you know, everything in national life from worship to taxes to the health department to the justice system and more and more and more. And that should be complicated. And it is. When you try to read the law, it's pretty complicated. In fact, every time I read through it, you know how Jesus condensed the whole thing down to love God and love people, and that seems overly, overly simple? Every, every single time I, I think of that reality, I think of my two sons when they were in English class in high school. They were both studying Shakespeare at the same time. And my second son, who is a kind of a literalist um, in everything, was getting very, very frustrated. They were, they were, they were studying Romeo and Juliet, and it's, it's, it's Romeo's, you know, big long, uh, speech to Juliet at her balcony, and he's kinda, uh, and Matthew is listening, he's trying to decipher every single word, and he's like, I am so lost, this is gibberish, there, not a word of this makes sense. And Josiah casually goes, dude, you're thinking too hard, he just told her she's hot. 
Like, which, which is, which is about what I feel like sometimes when Jesus is like, dude, the whole thing sums up to love God and love people. And I'm like, I've read it. It is way harder than that. But yeah, dude, he's just saying she's hot. So yeah, sometimes despite Jesus condensing it for us, the law can feel thick and confusing. But once Moses had laid it all out for the people, this entire system, he offered them this. He said, this command I'm giving you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It's not kept in heaven so distant that you have to ask, who will go up to heaven and bring it down so we can hear it or obey it? It's not kept beyond the sea so far away that you might ask, who will cross the sea and bring it to us? So we can hear it and obey. No, the message is very close at hand. It's on your lips and in your heart so you can obey it. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death. Between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day, love the Lord your God and keep His commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in His ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply. And the Lord, will give you, will, the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're about to encounter and occupy, enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I will warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long, a long good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. So I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. So John writes this book 2,000 years ago for the express purpose that his readers, most of whom were no doubt Jewish and familiar with the Torah, but for the express reason that those readers might believe and live, that they might have life. But 1,500 years before that, Moses writes down the Torah for the exact same purpose, that you might live. When Moses is all done, he stands before his people and he says, I've written all this down that you would choose life. I offer you this day death and life. Oh, that you would choose life. And you can hear those same words in John's account. I've written all these things down that you would choose life. I offer you this day death and life. Oh, that you would choose Life. It's a familiar story to a Jewish reader. For a Jew going all the way back to Moses, it's been this choice. Death or life. And here's what's weird. If Moses was offering the Jews the same thing John was offering, death or life, then life should be the same in both. Whatever this thing called life is, should be the same. Only heaven is never mentioned in the Torah. If heaven is the goal, then why doesn't Moses say, I offer you this day death and life. Please obey these commands that you can go to heaven when you die. He doesn't say that. In fact, I've always wrestled with the question, if God made us to be in heaven with him, why did he put us in a garden? Moses going to die and going to heaven isn't life. The kind of life he's offering in the Torah looks like 
something different. To Moses, life looks like something far more ordinary. He says this, For I command you this day, love the Lord your God and keep His commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in His ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to enter and occupy. So Moses is offering life, but life in Moses' offer sounds like doesn't sound like this kind of ethereal heaven place that none of us really understand, but we're all anxious to get to. Like that's weird. But it sounds like something that our hearts really cry out for. Moses is speaking of fruitfulness and meaning and blessing. The Hebrew word for multiply means can be translated increase. It can speak of the size of your family, sure, that you'll be fruitful, that you'll increase the size of your family. But it also speaks of your, your wealth and your influence and your reputation and just your value. He's like, you're going to go and increase. The Hebrew word translated live can also mean restore or nourish or heal. In several places, it's translated to, to be whole. He's like, you're going to go and live. You're going to go and be whole and increase. Although Moses was not talking about the modern understanding of heaven as the spiritual dwelling place of God we go to after death, what he's offering sounds pretty great to me. Can you imagine your life if every day your life had meaning? Like, like meaning you can feel in your bones. Can you imagine if your life felt like every day you made progress? Does anybody else ever feel that one step forward, two steps back? Like every time I start doing okay, I, something happens and got to pay for that now. And got to, like you get knocked back again. Can you imagine if life was a blessing, like a real blessing? People were good to each other and your joints didn't hurt when you woke up and you, you didn't work hard every day just to watch the weather destroy it. But everything you set your hands to was blessed and did genuine good for other people. This is what Moses is offering the people of Israel when they read the Torah. Do these things and and you'll live, like really live. It seems like such an easy choice, doesn't it? Just obey the commands and have heaven on earth. Or disobey and have hell. But the best part is that just as John's original readers, when they read the gospel, as he laid out the simple choice between Jesus and experiencing life or rejection and and experiencing death, just like his readers would have read that and thought back to Moses and thought, Moses offered us death and life. Moses' original readers would have also heard something hearkening to an earlier story. 3,500 years ago when Moses presented this to the children of Israel, surely they thought we've been offered this choice before. They would have thought back to another story that sounds really similar to this. It reads like this. Then God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man that he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees to grow up out of the ground. Trees that were beautiful and, and produced beautiful or delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he, tra- he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord placed the man in the, in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord warned him, you may eat freely 
the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you will surely die. John wrote, these things are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in the power of his name. Moses wrote, I'm giving you a choice between life and death, prosperity and disaster. Oh, that you would choose life. And 2,500 years before that, the earliest iteration of us was given the same choice. I offer you this day life or death. Oh, that you would choose life. See, the human condition has never really changed. I mean, Adam and Eve got to be naked all the time, which sounds awesome. But the choice was always life or death. And here's the thing, just like just like a life that Moses offered was different than the life we think of when we think of eternal life that comes from Jesus. So the death that God uh, threatened is different than when we think of death. I mean, for starters, they didn't die, which is weird, right? Because, I mean, we assume that when they ate, death entered the human story for the first time. Um, I guess they would have just lived perpetually um, if they hadn't eaten that fruit. But it feels like the shock of not dying is missing from the story. Does anybody else ever think of that? It seems, it seems like two things should have happened. First, Eve should have taken a bite and then winced and then opened one eye and been like, huh, I'm still alive. <laughs> right? Doesn't it feel like that should have... Because God was like, the moment you eat of it, you will die. You'd think she'd be surprised. I'm still here. The second thing that should have happened is the snake should have said, Ha ha! I told you! God was lying. I mean, we read it like God said, Don't eat the fruit or you'll die. The snake comes along and says, You won't die. Eve has a choice. She chooses to eat and she doesn't die. And it's hard to imagine what that, that Eve thought, Well, but I'm pretty sure death's going to enter the human story at some point. That would be a weird thing to think. This all seems crazy to me. And it seems to me that God promised death, the snake called bluff, and no one died. Except, no one in the story brings out this inconsistency. No one in the story even mentions this. Which leads me to believe that the moment Adam and Eve tasted the fruit, they did die. Whatever kind of life they experienced before the fruit suddenly ended. Otherwise, they would have said, I'm not dead. They didn't even question God's promised consequence because they experienced it. Whatever richness, whatever inner emotional security, whatever passion for being alive, whatever childlike wonder they had at the garden, whatever umbilicus that connected them to the very heart and nature of God, died. And they knew it immediately. That's why they don't, that's why they don't look surprised that they didn't die because they did. They knew something has changed dramatically. This must be what death is. And before that, they wouldn't have known what death was. And so they stood there in this new brokenness going, oh my God, this is death. We talk about it all the time. 
It forms part of the vision of what we do here at Open Table Community Church. It's part of our core foundational belief. But I believe they died in four ways. Their relationship with themselves died. They were no longer comfortable with with who they were. They suddenly felt the need to cover up and hide. This brand new emotion was called shame. They'd never experienced it before. Their relationship with God died. When God showed up, they hid. They had never hidden from God before. Their instinct had always been to run to God. But now they're avoiding His presence. Brand new emotion was fear. The relationship with each other was broken. It died. Not long before this in the story, they were talking about being so close, they were thinking of themselves as one. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The two were one. And now they saw themselves as separate and they wanted to be more separate. She did it. This new emotion was anger, bitterness. And the relationship with the planet they had been made from was broken. No longer would there be this fruitfulness and this plenty. Survival would only happen through a scratching effort and a bitter sweat. This new emotion was sadness. They'd never experienced it before. The story only sounds weird because we have such a shallow understanding of death. But Adam and Eve, who had tasted life, beautiful, full life, they recognized death immediately. Not liking who I am is death. The bitter and hateful feelings I have towards some people is death. The pain and struggle of working so hard to make a living and never feeling like there's enough is death. And yeah, having the desire to to worship God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but never being able to pull it off is death. Imagine your life without all that death. Imagine if you looked at yourself in the mirror and the only thing you saw was the flawless, wonderful masterpiece of a beautiful and creative God. Imagine if you had no hate in your heart whatsoever and people didn't drive you crazy. You didn't feel a desire to separate yourself from some people and argue with them and debate with them. You just lived every day feeling like other people's happiness was your own happiness and knowing they felt the same toward you. Imagine there was no struggle to survive. Just just the creative desire to grow things and see them be beautiful. Whether it was a living thing or a, a business or a city, whatever, just this desire to see it thrive and be fruitful and to have it cooperate with you in that endeavor. Imagine if we didn't have all the doubts and fears and the weird little power struggles with God. If the only emotion you felt when you thought about God was elated joy, no feelings like He was angry with you or wondering if He's real, or confusion and frustration with why He does what He does when you think He should be doing something else. Just joy that God is and you get to be a part of Him. That's what Adam and Eve felt, and that's what they lost. I think the reason the snake doesn't declare victory that Adam and Eve didn't actually die was because they did. Right there on the spot they died. 
And 25 years later, when Moses is offering life to the Israelites, they were anxious to say yes. They knew death. They knew the death that Adam and Eve had handed down. So they desperately wanted life. So when Moses said, what do you choose? They said, yes, we will do all these things because we want life. We want richness. 1,500 years after that, Jesus said he came to give life. And John said, I wrote this all down so you could have life. 2,000 years later, we sit here this morning hoping with everything in us that that offer is still good. And I believe that it is. The reason I wanted to open with the whole passage this morning about the disciples being in locked rooms rather than just skipping to John's purpose for writing this book was because of this one little line that he speaks to Thomas. Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. That's you and me this morning. We are offered the same choice that Adam and Eve were offered, life or death. We are offered the same choice that that was offered to the children of Israel before entering the promised land, life or death. And we're offered the same choice John's original readers were offered, life or death. Tree of life. Or the tree that leads to death. Obedience to the commands that lead to life. Or disobedience that only offers death. Do we accept a rich and abundant life in Jesus? Or do we settle for death? We know what Adam and Eve chose. We know what the children of Israel chose. And if we're 100% honest, the game was kind of rigged. Right? The children of Israel never really had much of a chance at the life that they were seeking because they were still carrying the death that Adam and Eve bought. The beautiful author of life was right there. The description of the fullness and abundant and rich life with meaning and purpose was there. But they were already carrying death with them. And this is why the Easter story is so important because after six thousand years of death on top of death on top of death the fact that Jesus walked out of that tomb and defeated death gives us hope finally for life that life we were created for that life that Adam and Eve experienced however shortly that life that God had in mind when he breathed into a mud sculpture is available because Jesus defeated death. It's why John told his story, was that we may have that kind of life. So how do we respond to this? We're diving into a series talking about life. I'm calling it the game of life. Now what life is supposed to look like? And we're not talking about heaven. Heaven is a bonus. Heaven is like icing on the cake. Don't get me wrong, heaven's Beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of the whole story. I believe John wrote his gospel offering us more than just heaven. I think he was offering us life. And we love, we love the idea of heaven because after John wrote his gospel, he died. And so heaven's an important piece of the picture. In fact, years ago, my mentor and my two best friends were all killed in a car wreck together at the same time. 
And in the wreckage of our sorrow, I was sitting with a couple of my Bible college students, and they asked me if I thought we could go and lay hands on them at the hospital, and they would raise from the dead. I mean, people did it in the Bible, so why not? And I told them that I didn't think it would work. And they were asking me why. They said it's so senseless that they would die. They did so much good for so many people. Why would God not want them to go on doing good? And I answered, I didn't know. I didn't know. But God let the disciples die for some reason. When the church really, really needed them. When you have this brand new movement and you've got this group of leaders that seem to be the heart of it and they all die tragically early. So somehow there's a physical death that leads to life and a physical life that leads to death. And I don't understand all that. All of it is way above my pay grade. But what I do feel qualified to talk about, what I believe in my heart, is that we were created for life today. We are resurrection people. And our job is to see death turn to life. Part of living in the upside-down kingdom is to constantly see death, the four deaths that Adam and Eve experienced, and to see that death resurrected every day. We're supposed to be different people. As followers of Jesus, we are supposed to be alive. What I plan to do over the next however many weeks is to look at at least four of Jesus' parables where he... He talks about what life looks like. This kind of life. The, the life that, that, that Adam and Eve lost in those four key areas. The relationship with ourselves, the relationship with God, the relationship with others, and the relationship with our vocation or, or, or calling. All those things died when Adam and Eve ate that fruit. But Jesus gave us some word pictures. He painted pictures with stories about what life could look like. And we're going to study that for at least the next four weeks. Before we dive into all that, I thought we needed to lay a little foundation of the, the, the history of the choice between life and death. Because although the same decision keeps popping up over and over and over again throughout human history, the game has changed. See, Adam and Eve were offered life or death. Moses offered life or death. And what really is different? Aren't we just offered the same options humans have been offered forever and failed? The answer is no, because there is one subtle difference. Adam and Eve's choice was based on their obedience. Moses' choice was based on the Israelites' obedience. But Jesus' choice is based on grace because it hinges on his obedience. Jesus knew we couldn't obey. He knew we wouldn't obey. So Jesus chose to be the one who would obey. He obeyed in every point, never deviating from the Father's will. And then rather than just relish that full and unbroken life as a beautiful example of what life could look like, if only we could do it, he went farther. He gathered up all the death. Literal death, yes, he he literally died. But he also rolled up all the shame and the hate and the fear and the sadness and he chose to die and absorb all that death as a beautiful act of grace. And he left us with a beautiful decision. Similar 
to the one Adam and Eve made, so similar to the one that Moses offered, and yet not at all the same. He said, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'd have life. That's our choice. Do you believe? No longer is it obey or disobey. Jesus knows we can't obey. Jesus knows we're going to disobey. So he obeyed. And in his grace, he simply asks us to believe that he's the giver of life. He's where life, true life, the kind of life we all crave, comes from. This leaves us with the question, is Jesus enough for you? That's a much harder question than it seems. Is Jesus enough for you to feel whole and unashamed? Or do you need more? Is Jesus enough of a reason for you to love rather than hate? Because Jesus loved even the people crucifying him. Is his love enough? Is the way Jesus stood happily in the Father's presence and received the love and affirmation the Father gave? Or do you still still feel like you have to earn it a little bit? Or maybe just hide outright? And is the way Jesus moved through life spreading fullness and abundance, multiplying food where needed and wine where needed and pulling grain when he needed to, to eat, never fretting about whether there was going to be enough? Is his peace and trust enough? Those are not easy questions. Because as long as Jesus is not enough, I don't think we experience life. If you accept Jesus' grace, but you feel like you still need to add some effort to it in order to be enough, then you will stand there in the same disappointed failure that Eve stood in. As long as loving the way Jesus loved is not enough, as long as you hold on to a list of people that are justifiably unlovable. I mean, I love most people, but these people, you can't. As long as you love like that, you'll stand in the same death that Adam stood in. So the question is, is Jesus enough? We live in the midst of death. It's all around us. It's still in us. We still struggle with the same brokenness Adam and Eve did. The shame, the fear, the anger, the sadness. And and right there in the midst of all that, Jesus is saying, I have taken care of it. I have conquered death. Do you believe me? Is that answer enough? And if yes, if you're like, yes, I believe you. I believe in you. I believe we will see resurrection. I believe we will see dead things come to life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We, we bring resurrection to all the death around us. We work to see relationships come back to life. We work to see dreams come back to life. We work to see our own minds and the tormenting self-talk that haunts us come back to life. We can expect to see the death that, that leads to lack come back to life in a rich abundance. And this isn't like name it or claim it, or as, as Dale taught me, blab it and grab it. We're not putting on holy blinders and pretending like everything is rosy 
We own that death is still there, but we believe that Jesus is enough to bring it back to life. So we hope. We never stop hoping. We never stop believing in resurrection. We never stop believing that Jesus is enough to give us life.